This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to be with you after the election was announced. And we're just having one guest for the day, and that is Robert Brenner. He's with us again. He is a professor of history at UCLA and the author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence and The Boom and the Bubble, among other works. His latest article in New Left Review 123 for May-June is called Escalating Plunder. And it's the story of how the economic aid package for the pandemic increased the upward redistribution of wealth of recent decades. In other interviews that we've had right here with Robert Brenner, he's developed his ideas on what he calls the long downturn and the way the finance sector, corporations, and the very wealthy have rigged the economy to their benefit. Today, we're going to look at the political economy of the 2020 election. And yes, it's over. It was called on Saturday, November 7th for Joseph Biden. It's an historic election in so many ways, taking place against a world wide pandemic that is escalating by the day in the United States with more than a quarter million deaths that increases by about a thousand a day. The election saw record voter turnout with 100 million mail-in ballots and another 60 to 65 million in-person votes. Trump fared far better than expected. It was very close and he has thus far refused to concede. Also, in terms of historical significance, California Senator Kamala Harris is the first female vice president, and she's also the multiracial daughter of immigrants with a Marxist economist father and a Jewish husband. And while the Biden-Harris ticket are moderate Democrats, their victory is also significant for ousting a dangerous, racist, and xenophobic narcissist. And at the very least, promises decency and compassion. And those are no small feats. Biden's four priorities as president, he said, would be the pandemic, the economy, racial justice, and the climate crisis. How much Biden can deliver on the economy, racial justice, and the climate crisis depend, of course, on the outcome, first of all, of the January Senate runoff in Georgia, as well as what the donors directing the Democratic Party establishment will allow. The pressure is on, but Robert Brenner is here with us to explain the political economic dimension and what that means for the battles ahead. So, Robert Brenner, welcome back. And so good to have you here. And I want to just start out with asking you the simplest, easiest question. What is the big picture for the election outcome? Thanks very much, Susie. It's uh, great to be here and a very interesting moment. It'll be interesting to look back at this discussion to see if it's at all relevant, say, two months from now. In general, on the surface, you have to admit that Joe Biden did very well for himself. In fact, it's not easy to see how he could have done much better. Biden managed to provoke a record turnout for the Democrats, the biggest vote for any presidential candidate by far, the best vote as a percentage of the available electorate, the best percentage by far since 1900. So in the first instance, in the simplest way of counting, 
Biden did extremely well. Moreover, he did well in the places he's needed to do well. He did pretty well in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to restore the so-called blue wall. And according to exit polls, which still have to be confirmed, he cut down Trump's central constituency, non-college educated whites, especially males in those states, quite substantially one key factor in his victory. He also held on pretty well to what's left of the industrial working class and what's left of a deindustrialized working class, again, which the Democrats had trouble keeping last time. Also, Biden did well to win Arizona, another one of the states that delivered the election for him that they hadn't won last time, along with Colorado, New Mexico, an emerging powerhouse of young Latinos in the Democratic Party in the Southwest. Uh, Latinos came out two to one for Biden in Arizona. So you have New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada, and a possibility of consolidating a Democratic majority on the basis of Latino votes and Latino workers there. Also won Georgia through a major vote-getting effort in both the suburbs and the city. So seems, stepping back, that the Democrats' version of the ground game was carried out quite well in their own terms. So that's the first, I would say, indubitable a statement of what happened, but it is just the first take, so to speak, and very partial. What's the second take? The second take is, of course, that Trump and the Republicans also did extremely well in their own terms, also had record turnout. It's doubtful, as far as I've been able to see in watching election after election, that with that turnout, of Trump supporters, looking at them alone, not the rest, not any other part of the electorate. His mass base expanded impressively and drawn as it was from small town America, basically the exurbs and rural areas, so-called working people, but many other sorts of people in these areas, Trump won them overwhelmingly and In my opinion, I don't think the Democrats or Biden had much of a chance to really penetrate that group. So the Trump ground game, basically, in this case, door to door, came through very well in the exurban and rural districts and gave a extremely successful, in its own terms, a result for Trump. So you have Bottom line, at the level of the election of president, it defined more or less as a referendum on Trump. Nuances of policy really took a back seat. There was no need in particular for the Democratic Party to offer anybody anything in order to attract the vote. So they, for the Democrat turnout, It had to be mainly just about a turnout to vote against Trump. 
And everyone agreed that that was a necessary condition for anything positive in the democratic ranks. So beyond that, they did not have to go. And as we'll see, that opened the way for one big win, but what else it won, not so clear. It's clear, however, that very few people had failed to make up their mind before the election. There was not a question of winning over undecideds. Both sides did well in mobilizing turnout. That was what the election was about, turnout versus turnout, and the Democrats did better. But we'll see in a minute that this very, very important victory for the Democrats still gives a very misleading idea of what the Democratic strength actually is. And it's really interesting that you bring all of those things up, Robert Brenner, because as we know, it was very surprising to see North Carolina still not decided and to see Georgia, in other words, states, you know, that have traditionally been red as well as Arizona flipping. And it's not all just demographic, although that's important in the case of Georgia you know, you have this amazing effort on the part of Stacey Abrams and her organization that she set up after that defeat when she ran in the last cycle and there was voter suppression to the umpteenth. And I think that's the big caveat because the surprise in terms of the voter turnout is that this came on the heels of a persistent effort on the part of the Republican Party over the last four years and longer to suppress the vote. And and we still don't know to what extent you know, that voter uh, suppression stopped even more people from voting because we know where voter ID laws have been passed, that there are up to 11 million people in the United States who do not have voter ID with photos and cannot afford to get them. And so in those states, that means that they, you know, didn't have a chance. And then they, as we know, in many other states, lots of in-person polling places were shut down, or in the case of Texas, there was only one for all of Houston. And so there were still those efforts. And despite that, we got this giant turnout. So that seems to be something to to watch and take into account and think, you know, and not just dismiss this great participation as canceling out that. And I, I just wanted to go from there then to raise this other question, Robert Brennan, and that's the conundrum, given Biden's huge success in its own terms. Just a while ago, everyone was predicting a Democratic Party landslide. And I think maybe we're going to put the pollsters, push them aside after this. That's two elections where they get it really wrong. And if you're ever a donor to either side, you got one after another email saying, it's Mitch, you know, and Amy McGrath, neck and neck. Jamie Harrison is going to overtake Lindsey Graham. And all of these, you know, echoed in the polls that the polls showed them much closer than it actually turned out to be, or that Susan Collins could win after everyone said that she was toast. And that, as I said, was the prediction was based on extreme and apparent self-undermining the character of Trump's policies. He and the Republicans, and this is critically important, refused to pass any sort of stimulus at the time of the worst recession since the 1930s as the previous one ran out. And when, when we say stimulus, I mean pandemic care package where people had to leave work because there was a shutdown. And then afterwards, many went back, not enough, but ran out of money and help. And of course, we've seen more people in food banks than ever before. Uh, More hunger, more, even though there's a so-called moratorium on evictions, evictions are taking place nonetheless. And 
Trump also took a very extreme stance on the coronavirus. And I think this is the linchpin for his defeat. He said it is what it is, even as it was exploding and even when he himself got it and then, you know, just completely weaponized the wearing of masks and created super spreader events and tried to just pretend that it didn't exist. And then he, and of course, this is really about Mitch McConnell, took advantage of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death to push through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett while ignoring the relief package that was so needed by the population. So Trump and the Republicans were expected to pay a price, even among his own followers. And then, of course, that doesn't even take into account all of those Republicans who just couldn't bring themselves to vote from the Never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project and and the Biden Republicans. We'll get into that. So it tested his own followers' loyalty as they thought maybe he's even going too far for them. And then I just mentioned that it was predicted that the Democrats were going to win all three branches, that they were going to win the presidency, the executive, they were going to retake the Senate and win more in the House. And that seemed to have been predicted by most of the polling organizations and authorities like uh, the Cook Report thought that at least that they would win the Senate by a slim majority and that they would have picked up 10 to 20 seats in the House. And that didn't come to pass. And they actually lost Uh, seats in the House. So in terms of the uh, nuts and bolts here, it seems as if there was a stasis, which put the Democratic victory in question. And that's a question for you. Is that right? And then, of course, it means, of course, in terms of the Senate, they didn't take it. If the Georgia one comes out for them, those two seats, those are going to be a huge hill to climb, then they might have a slim majority. So how do you see that? Yes, I think uh, that's the retort to my initial statement about how well Biden did and how well he did, if you conceive of the election, as many clearly did conceive of it, as a referendum on Trump per se. In that first respect, Biden and the Democrats did exceedingly well. But the political meaning of that is immediately blurred by just what you say, looking beyond that basic result on the presidential election to the rest of the country. And especially in terms of all the negatives that it looked like the Republicans had to deal with in terms of their refusal to speak to the deep depression after the initial support to the population that went along with the CARES Act expired. Those were no longer extant. Secondly, you have the worst pandemic ever, nothing done at all for the pandemic. And it, as the election is taking place, it's raging particularly fiercely in the Republican areas, not to mention then the supposedly self-destructive act of appointing Coney Barrett. So all of this seem to like play directly into the hands of the Democrats. And nonetheless, they made nothing of it to say the best. The best they did was hold the line, and they clearly did not do that very well. Given the predictions of landslide, whatever that was supposed to mean, in this second respect, 
the election had to be a huge disappointment for the Democrats and spoke, in my opinion, to their longer-term difficulties. Now, how do we look at this? It seems to me that both of the parties in this election, it's as if they were operating in their own spheres, each showed a certain degree of attractiveness, each showed a tremendous inability to take advantage of what possibilities that were there. And I think before we go into each one of them and what their trajectory has been and what it is today, I think we have to look at the kind of big picture of politics, might say the structure of politics, which encompasses both of them. And if you take it seriously, shows why it is that both parties have an exceedingly difficult time in this new framework of politics, new meaning emerging in the latter part of the 20th century and consolidating in the first part of the 21st, both have a tremendous difficulty of speaking to what we could call in a straightforward, not complicated understanding, the class interests of working people. Working people generally defined on the basis of the politics they put forward. Why is that? What is the basic difficulty that we are seeing played out again and again in this epoch? So we have the bottom line. What has changed everything from a, an understanding of politics, which seemed fairly straightforward in the post-war epoch, you know, roughly from the period of the 40s through the early 70s, perhaps, from that point, fierce, extreme economic decline across the board, decade by decade, business cycle by business cycle. I'm not going to go through this. I've discussed it on your show by the period of the, like the last business cycle leading into the recession we're still in, 2008 to 2020, total disaster, really. Very, very little growth, very, very little investment, very, very little productivity, meaning increase in output per person, therefore very little ability to allow profits to grow, Very little ability, of course, to allow wages or social spending to grow. So that is the background. The key to the post-war period had been the long boom, opening the way to a certain politics. This has undermined it. So we have this long, deep, historic period of decline. And the last decade leading into this recession was the deepest and shockingly bad. It really bears comparison to the Great Depression if you're looking at length and bad results rather than the worst moments where it's true. There's never been in this period yet 25% unemployment and so forth. However, a very, very bad period. That's the first thing to say. Secondly, there was a big attempt to reverse this process of decline, which initially appeared as a crisis of accumulation and profitability in the 70s. It involved an attempt to 
increase effective demand through kind of a conservative Keynesianism, a attempt to raise profitability by policies of austerity. Finally, very characteristic attempts to protect the economy through a low dollar, which had been you know, the opposite of what had been in the post-war period, in order to allow for capital accumulation to take place in a protected framework. Now, at the time, it was thought that it could only succeed. They had never had any idea that these policies, the classical ones, the accepted ones, could ever fail to restore uh, capital accumulation dynamism. But they failed miserably. And that Failure opened the way to a new epoch with a completely different political economic character, which is what the Democrats and Republicans adapted to and created and what made it very, very difficult for them to act in terms of how they define their framework and at the same time speak to an electorate. That failure of this national Keynesian project in the 70s had one huge effect. It meant that no longer would either party, the power that be in the society, attempt to do what state actors, political actors had always done, which is to use state policy to create the conditions for capital accumulation by creating the conditions for capitalist profits. And by doing that, unleashing processes of investment, employment, output, productivity improvement, all of which would open the way to greater possibilities for rising direct wages and rising government spending. So that you have a process in which the whole of the society is dependent on capital accumulation, all have an interest in making that happen. And this is the framework of reformism that, as we know it in the U.S. and almost everywhere else, that is what politics is about, is the politics of securing profitability and then making sure that everybody gets the benefits of the resulting growth. So that everyone was oriented to that politics. And so a fundamental transformation occurs when that growth no longer can succeed. And this is what we have had ever since. With the end of the ability to deal with the economy by helping growth, by helping profitability, two trends emerge that have been dominant ever since. The first one was always dominant. Let's put it like this. In 1980 or so, everyone thinks a big change has taken place, and they call it neoliberalism. Everyone uses that term. And it's fine, except it has a lot of problems in actually saying what occurred. On the one hand, the liberal aspect of neoliberalism was exemplified by globalization. 
freeing up American capital, basically, to scour the world to find the best opportunities to invest. That is the way big capital in the U.S. had been dealing with its problems since the 50s, because in the U.S., there were generally higher costs. So the sort of fate of American capital was globalization. And it started in the 50s and never stopped. And then that is the perspective of the corporations, the productive corporations in the United States. And through most of this period, they're world beaters, if not at home, on a world scale. That is a kind of liberalizing trend. The the 70s might have ended it, but it didn't. So that's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on is that the flip side of the essentially implicit decision of the powers that be not to attempt to create the conditions for capital accumulation in the U.S., just letting things go, that meant that in order to operate effectively in the U.S. in this period, the absolute opposite of liberalization Mm -hmm. had to take place. And this was essentially a move to effectively use politics, use political power to bring about the transfer of already existing wealth and income to the economic and indeed a little bit political elite. That is the emergent economic elite says to the political parties and to the the government, we'll give you whatever you want in terms of money, finance your operations. You give us privileges, you give us posts, you give us access to income that comes only through politics. On the other hand, we'll give you the money that you need to do politics and we'll give to your top political leaders the ability to make a a fortune. So that was the other side of the settlement that came essentially in the 80s and 90s. On the one hand, continuation of globalization. On the other hand, the use of the state to effectively nurture through political means various interests. We could see that in terms of cuts in taxation. Then you have, especially in you know historical terms, this famous rise of finance was essentially providing political means to support financial actors. We know how that took place, essentially. Most obvious ways is their manipulation of the equity markets on the one hand, lower interest rates to drive up the markets, lower rates to allow for endless borrowing to essentially not really to finance corporations, but to effectively do stock buybacks and dividends to provide for the owners of those corporations uh, very often at the expense of the corporations themselves. So in effect, we now have a politics which speaks in no way whatsoever to the needs of the population. And it's a very special kind of thing because every dollar, so to speak, that gets through to everyday people, every dollar that went that way came at the expense of these leading interests. And to fill in the picture, when we're talking about these interests in each party, 
we're talking about the donors, the donor class. And so they will be representing one or another particular big interest in the political economy. You can see now the problem that was faced by both parties, since both parties had the same effective operation. Both supported globalization. Both tried to partake of the politically driven upward redistribution for themselves and for the capitalists and the rich that the donor class directly represented. And so this is the political problem. And it culminates in the period of 2010 to 2020 in the Great Recession, in all these gains going in, in, in huge gains going to this layer under conditions of terrible economic advance. 2010 to 2020 was bad enough. Then comes the recession. So the premise of politics, the premise of reform disappears at this point when there's such a huge slowdown on a world scale and particularly the United States. What we have is not a positive sum game, but a zero sum game. And that becomes the problem for politics henceforth. What you've done, Robert Brennan, I'm really glad that you took the time to explain all of that, which you've also done in your articles and here on this show, is to sort of describe what you're calling predation. Others would just say the rigged economy or the way that there is upward redistribution of wealth through all kinds of policies. But in a very direct way, you're talking about literally, I guess it's worse than plunder when you have predation. Maybe you could like clarify that or, or amplify that to a certain degree. But then the, the question that is posed by all of that and your analysis is how does either party succeed? And this is everybody's thinking about this. You know, one normally thinks that parties represent interests. And when both parties basically represent the tiny interests of the wealthy, even though they couch it in all kinds of rhetoric and pay lip service to the working class and to the divide, let's say, between urban and rural and all the rest of it, how do they succeed when they are not providing a dynamic economy, when they are not providing growth or investment or employment jobs, right? Even as Trump promised to bring jobs back to coal country or back to steel country, and maybe he succeeded in getting 50 or 60 here and there. But overall, we're not you know, seeing what is promised. And instead, what we see over and over again on the part of both parties, but, you know, since we're mostly concerned about the party that just won, that they do everything they can to nurture their donors and their donors' interests. So can you talk a little bit about that with regard to the Democratic Party? Sure. That is the starting point. Since you have this zero-sum economy, which is by its very nature about nurturing the donors' How do you have a democratic politics? How do you participate? How do you organize a democratic politics? How do the Democrats do it? How do Republicans do it? Given that the donors, that this initial interest is unmovable, that's the starting point. Uh, One way you can look at the problem emerges is people find it very, very easy and speak constantly 
of the problem of maldistribution, polarization in this society. And that, of course, is a overwhelmingly dominant feature. But what people do not realize is the extent to which this overriding trend to maldistribution, polarization of wealth, wealth concentration at the top, that in itself, as important as it is, it is a completely derivative phenomenon. It is not understandable apart from the much bigger problem, which is not maldistribution, but which is a failure of production. And it's that failure of production that has opened the way to the zero-sum economy with both parties. So this is what, in effect, what really explains the nature and the timing of this polarization, concentration of wealth. Because it's not just any maldistribution. It's not just any polarization. It's one that is driven politically. And it doesn't happen through the economy itself. It happens starting at a very particular point, 1980, when you begin to get the organization of the government and both parties along the lines I'm saying. So to the Democrats, what do they do? How do they deal with this? And again, remember, you're now talking not about a government that's trying to create policies to get capital accumulation, get capitalism expanding. It's accepting that capitalism in the United States, at least, can't expand very much. So what that is politics is about supporting the interests that are associated with each party. I don't have time to go all through them, but who are the Democrats? They're media, they're high tech a lot of finance, education in terms of charter schools, health insurers, Mm -hmm. hospitals. These are all the interests that the Democrats are associated with. Note, they are not being supported through a policy of growth, technological productivity growth, and so forth. They're being supported through a policy of privilege in each one of their cases. And that means that they are supported at the expense of everyone else. So how can the Democrats continue to have support? In part, both parties benefited from a brief period where the working people effectively were able to gain through the new economy. In the late 90s, you have the bubbles, the stock market bubble, and for a very brief time, it led to more investment and wage growth. In the next bubble, housing bubble, people who owned houses looked like they were getting rich. Of course, they weren't. Their house prices were going up. But for a moment, it looked like there was a compatibility between the new zero-sum economy and the interest of working people. These two bubbles burst, and it was totally clear this couldn't happen. How did the Democrats cope? The first way they coped was through the Bill Clinton DLC experiment, which was carried over basically to Obama as well. It was a way of trying to put forward policies that would attack 
African-Americans, Latinos, and so forth, through crime, incarceration, build the wall, all of the policies that we know took place under Obama, you know, the, the sending people back, a series of attempts to effectively save, to some degree, the the white male sections, uh, American section of the working class, the expense of the others. This was not a particularly stable, and it was also what the Republicans were doing themselves to solve the same problem. So ultimately, what the Democrats have attempted to do is, and they've been given the space somewhat to do this by the Republicans, is attempt to speak to, you know, what's grossly called the suburban elements, which is really your basically well-off families who are in the urban or suburban pieces of the economy. What they are unable to accept is the way effectively the Republicans have done the Democrats one better. And so what the Democrats are trying to do is develop an electoral base that is coherent with the interests of the donors and that the ideology there is social liberalism, which we understand it is not economic liberalism. So for a moment, 2018, that looks like the way of the future for the Democrats. In any case, that's what they're attempting to do. That's their dominant strategy. Whether that can succeed is uh, up for grabs, especially as this Great Recession has persisted. But that is how they're attempting to sort of square the circle, having a voting base, and at the same time, putting the donors first in an economy that's not growing. Okay, so we have about, I guess, 10 minutes that we can try to switch to the other side. And of course, what you said is incredibly important, Robert Brenner, to understand the strategy, or let's say the starting point at which the Democratic Party made the decision under the Clinton administration to leave the working class behind and to go for the better off suburbs. And and so what we're seeing... Well, they were, under Clinton, they were still trying to speak to effectively the white working class, to try to speak to the Democrats that Reagan had attempted to pick off the Reagan Democrats. And so adopting a series of policies that spoke in that direction. Okay, so I want to move this on because I want to get to everything that I think that you want to say. And that is, you know, having left the working class behind and you see this kind of what looks like or looked like a realignment in American politics. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of quickly, if you can, Robert Brenner, go over what the Republicans' approach to winning popular support has been in the neoliberal era, and in particular, of course, Trump, because it seems, you know, superficially confusing, because supposedly they've somehow left neoliberalism behind for populism. And this isn't just in the U.S., but everywhere, but you get these far-right populists sort of marrying this authoritarian populism, I guess, with neoliberal economic policy. So can you describe this form of authoritarian populism? Yeah, I mean, Let's just uh, say the obvious again. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism in quotes, can't speak to working class or any 
broad popular interest. I'm using the term neoliberalism really to mean two things again. One, globalization, which is liberal, and essentially the policy of political favoritism, what Trump came to call the swamp, corruption that complements it, and neither one are able to do more than speak to the interests of these rarefied layers. So how do the Republicans deal with this? Well, the term here, of course, of the day is authoritarian populism, and effectively that encapsulates what Trump and the current Republicans are trying to do in order to have both a mass base and continue to support their own donors. There's an aspect of this that, in my opinion, never really gets off the ground. But that is one very important part of the ideology. In other words, it is an ideology that is nationalist and protectionist, uh, so going apparently against globalization. It's about controlling immigration you know, in a particularly vicious way. It's about controlling imports in a particular in a vicious way, supposedly preventing the movement of capital out. So it's a nationalism that's supposed to be countering the internationalism of capital that's featured in this thing we put in quotes, neoliberalism. And so it it's the first part of the ideological glue that is this new authoritarian populism. And of course, it's not just in the US, but it's around the world. However, there's a big problem when your ruling class and the dominant elements of capital are precisely globalizing and are precisely at the heart of, let's say, to be simple about it, the new financial sector, depending on political support of the government, the Fed in many ways, banks, the financial markets, and so on. So how do you square this circle? Actually, in my opinion, there is no real capacity to do the anti-globalization element, however central it is. Although you could say with the vicious anti-immigrant politics, that's an important step politically in that direction. But I'd say the the way this is really done is a way which doesn't pretend really to speak in any way to control the the rich at capital, however you want to talk about that conjuries of the people who are running the show and benefiting it from it today. And what you have here instead is what I would call MAGA politics. And what this is about is in effect to recognize that in this atomized, fetishized, literally, capitalist economy, individual families at war with one another, there's not just one way collectively to pursue one's interest. One can, in the way we leftists often look at it, of course, through class politics, class interests, organizing class institutions. But if that's not available, if those are not available, and become ever more difficult to achieve. There's an alternative way to organize not the whole of the working class, but a part of the working class that doesn't particularly define itself as opposed to the working class, but is very clearly 
including only a very specific part, pieces of it. That is, above all, it is white. It is secondly, male. It is thirdly, American. It is fourthly, a particular sorts of religion. So you have this MAGA politics, which effectively, we know how it works. We know how the people use it around the world and how, how Trump uses it. It effectively says, you're not really implicitly, you're not going to in any way try to mess up the way the social order works. You're going to accept the dominant forces. But at the same time, you're implicitly aligned with those forces at the expense of everyone else. And it's a very powerful viewpoint. I believe MAGA politics should be understood in materialist terms, just like class politics. It's an alternative to class politics, although it can only speak to quite a small part of the population, and it cannot provide very much payoff to it. But the beauty of those politics is that the adherents effectively, in my opinion, are thrilled with these politics and are willing essentially to overlook everything else if these politics will be respected. And so that is really the reason, in my opinion, why despite all the things that Trump visits on these people or the Republicans will in future, they're willing to overlook these because the certain basic interests and certain basic ideological modes of operation are respected. And that would let to where you started, Susie, when you asked, well, aren't these people doing well? I'm saying, no, they're, some of them, of course, are, and that's a complicated and even doing well with Trump's COVID politics. But for the most part, what it is, is their willingness to look at the world as this is defined for them And so long as it's defined as MAGA politics, not to challenge. Okay, I'm going to ask a final question, Robert Brenner. Let's just uh, finally, and I know this is the speculative part of the interview because you've really gone over everything extremely well. And I know that it's difficult to spin a crystal ball and see how Biden and Harris will govern and what kind of politics they have. We already know. What we're seeing is some of the appointments. These are going to be key to understanding, you know, what the policies will tend to be. Moderate names keep coming up. So the question is, do you think, and of course, this is speculation, will it go along the lines of what Clinton and Obama, in other words, orienting more to the interests of the donors? But then you have another thing, and that is that I think that Biden probably knows that there was a giant fight with the left in the party and the a huge mobilization of millennials that backed Bernie Sanders, that put AOC and the squad into Congress and their numbers have increased. But then afterwards, graciously and importantly, um, you owe a big debt of gratitude to the left for mobilizing on the ground and on the phones and everywhere to make certain that Trump was defeated and Biden and Harris were elected. So, well, I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you think the relationship with Sanders and and the left, the AOC and the squad's going to be. And then I guess to put all of that in terms of um, 
you know, how this will go forward, given what I know you've told me and we've discussed and you've said here that we're moving into a very dangerous part in the economy, as well as a dangerous part with COVID, which is accelerating out of control. Uh, Europe is having more shutdowns. It looks like we're going to have to do that. And unless there's the kind of package, which could be done, uh, that would support everyone to do what you kind of call hibernation, I'm going to prefigure what you might want to say. But just, you know, let's get your final thoughts on what might happen in the next four years or not, or even the next two years. Sure. Let's start with the, let's say, what is obvious if the analysis I've been putting forward is right. And that is that Biden is the genetic <laughs> genetic successor of Obama, successor of the Clintons. And essentially, that's a unbroken line, if anything, with an harder and harder line stance, what we're calling neoliberal, but which I would say is about globalization. And then it's about this politically organized redistribution. So all else equal, that would be what Biden's politics is and what we would predict. What about Bernie? What about AOC? I think what, if you think for half a second, their contributions, however great, to Biden actually give them next to nothing because what they went along with Biden and built Biden because they believed with Biden and with the rest of Biden's supporters that the worst possible outcome, the outcome that had to be avoided at all costs was a Trump victory. So although they contributed to Biden's victory, they really, if Biden was a tough character and did not want to give them anything, say, yeah, thanks for supporting me. But why were you really doing that? You were doing that in your own interest and you had no choice. You didn't have another party. You didn't have another way of, of going. So you were stuck. So if there's going to be a change in what Biden does from what would be predicted from the awful character of Democratic Party leadership, it'd have to come from elsewhere. In my opinion, it is very likely there will be some divergence from that basic approach, because if the Democrats, because they choose to or because they're unable to do anything else, if they continue with that narrow donor-centered politics and don't provide any alternative, they're going to be gone within two to four years. They cannot compete with the Republicans without trying to find a better, stronger base basis. And the obvious problem they're going to face is a crisis that's already with us, and it is almost certain to get a lot worse because there is no resolution of COVID. And unless you get rid of COVID first, you will not be able to deal with the bigger picture. But there's an even more difficult issue, which is that in order to get the economy, it's not clear how to get this hyper-weak economy going in terms of the tools that they have easily available. What are those tools? The tools are, quote, stimulus 
in obvious places to use it uh, is somewhere like infrastructure and some allied areas. My prediction would be that if they possibly can, this is what they will do. They will, on the one hand, extend the kind of, quote, stimulus, but really support for people during the COVID crisis of the sort that was done in the early stages of the first CARES package. But they'll do it more systematically. I think they realize now that unless they do this, they will not be able to shake the virus and the economy will have to keep stuttering and shutting down. They can actually do this if they have the guts because interest rates are so low that they can effectively afford, I doubt if they'll do it right, but they could effectively afford to shut down a lot of the economy, put people in what's been called hibernation and support them until the virus is relatively under control. And if they did that right, they would also defend the people who are on the front line who have to work under dangerous conditions, not to mention in crazy things like meatpacking and so on. So they could afford to do that much. And they could afford, in addition, to do that kind of stimulus to create jobs and so forth. The problem, in my opinion, is that that much is not going to get very far. It's an absolute necessity. I think it's likely to happen. I think the crisis that's coming will make for that politics. But the difficulty here is that while we talk about Keynesianism, the reality is that this world economy, subject to all sorts of demand coming from the few successful places for a time, uh, massive indebtedness for a time in the United States, which ended little experiments in creating massive borrowing uh, like Trump's tax cuts. All of this really, which is all about abstract money in the economy, demand will not create much because of the overcapacity that's there and which we've seen basically asphyxiating employment and investment even before this recession. So the question that will face this country, and it's like, and I think most everywhere else, and it's a kind of this giant leap, is that what's called Keynesianism is really something that developed as a new economics in the 60s and really is about effectively tax cuts to neutrally stimulate those parts of the corporate sector who can benefit from higher rates of profit due to lower rates of taxation. That is the meaning of Keynesianism. That's not going to get us anywhere. What we need to get that investment that won't come from mere demand management is effectively state investment, statism. That is what's on the agenda if you want to get jobs, output, let alone transformations, a Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with global warming as well as jobs. That's where it has to come from. It can happen given that interest rates are so low. There's nothing standing in the way. The only thing that's standing in the way is that if 
statist investment is the way forward, it will provoke the opposition of the totality of the, the near totality of the elite. And therefore, it means it's an incredibly radical position. I would say that while we're waiting for the conditions, therefore, for statism, which are the conditions that we can impose it or win it against a tremendous capitalist opposition, we might as well be going whole hog. We might as well be going for the alternative to profit-driven private production that is not run from above and will attract very few people, but one that will oblige us to do that in ways that we've up till now called socialism, which we've not ever defined to the extent we need to. That's part of the political project. We'll have time for it. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that. I asked you to come on today to kind of define the political economic dimension of the situation that we're in and the battles ahead, and you more than fulfilled it. And I can't thank you enough, Robert Brenner, for uh, much more than I'd hoped for, and I hope the listeners liked it as much. Robert Brenner is the executive producer of this program, but he's also a professor of history at UCLA and the author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence. I won't go over all of them, but you can look at his uh, latest article in New Left Review from May-June of this year called Escalating Plunder. Robert Brenner, thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks very much, Susie. Pleasure to do this. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.